This is the Roaring Elven podcast for the 26th of September 2017. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is John, and here is my big or small co-host Dave. Indeed, many Daves or just one very large Dave. Uh, at the moment, it feels like one very large Dave. <laughs> uh, we're not going to go into Dave sizing this uh, episode, <laughs> but we are going to be talking about cluster sizes and more particularly, should you go for one big cluster or one very small cluster or very, very many little small clusters or very many big clusters? I think I have all the variations there. <laughs> I think you do. I don't think we're going to be talking about all of those variations, but yeah, sure. <laughs> Actually, this uh, topic was uh, given to us by a article which I had picked for one of our news uh, episodes. But uh, when we looked at it in more detail, we kind of thought, hmm, we can spend more than five minutes talking about this. So let's make it a topic show subject. And the article in question, links in the show note, of course, is an article from the medium.com website. I'm getting more and more articles from them lately hmm. must be something it's written by chris riccomini sorry if i butchered that name he's a software engineer at WePay and used to work at linkedin and paypal and he wrote in the second half of august a article called one big cluster or many small ones and in there he kind of has does a very nice summation of all the well maybe not all but a lot of the uh things to think about when deciding your architecture, your cluster architecture. And uh, we thought it would be a good idea to just go over that and give our view on his uh, on what he's writing there. Yeah. And I think it, it also it also echoed very strongly with us. It, we both have strong feelings about it, but also it's something that we get asked a lot yes. in our sort of day-to-day life is you know, th- this question of many clusters, one per whatever, we'll get onto that a little bit later, or, you know, one big data lake to rule them all that's multi-tenant and everything all yeah, singing yeah, all yeah, dancing. Yeah. yeah, it's a question that pops up of, uh, often, very often indeed. And you'll also be able to uh, enjoy the two views that we have because, uh, as people know, probably I'm in the cloud environment, while you, Dave, are more in the non-cloud environment, if I can call it that. Well, so I would say you are solely in yes. the cloud, up in the clouds, up there with <laughs> with the sky is blue and the clouds are fluffy. Um, I am probably more more on prem, but I, you know, I have a at least one foot and possibly a hand in the cloud. So yeah, more of a blended position in my case. So this, this will, of course, come forward in our comments on this subject, I guess. Indeed. So, I mean, the the interesting thing or the, the very nice thing actually about the article is um, the way that Chris handles this is he really, he doesn't say that you should do this or you should do that, mm-hmm. which is the right approach, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, he says that basically you should consider thinking about, you know, a number of different major categories and, you know, those how you answer those needs or requirements will really, uh, or should at least influence how you, you know, make your final decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's definitely the right approach. Yeah. So should we just should we just walk through them point by point and? Yeah, and if uh, there's anything missing that we think should be added, we'll uh, add it to the end. Very much so. All right. So the f- the first one really is around um, isolation, and he indeed splits this down into. Um, a couple of different uh, subcategories. But isolation as a whole, um, whether that's isolation of data, isolation of, um, you know, workloads that utilize CPU or network or IO bandwidth. Um, But really those subcategories are split down into performance isolation, security isolation, and deployment isolation. Um, so, Jan, do you want to kick off with performance? Um, yeah, I mean, that's the most uh, well-known one, I think, because yeah. uh, performance, not all of your workloads need to have the same amount of uh, hardware thrown at it. Now, obviously, Hadoop is a horizontal scalable system, so you can kind of size your cluster the way you want to. And there are ways of making Yarn subdivide your cluster. Mm-hmm. So you can actually have one big cluster and tell Yarn that these 10 nodes should be for that and those 11 nodes should be for that and that does give you 
yeah, if you have one big cluster built that way, that should give you very good usage, usability, usage. Uh, you should be able to share it, make it flexible, whatever. But it does entail a certain amount of management to make that all work together. It does, so yeah. It's a bit of a decision between management load and flexibility. Yeah, I mean, you've got the you've got the sort of the node labeling side of things, mm-hmm. but then you've also got the sort of the yarn capacity scheduler queues mm-hmm. where you can allocate percentages of of capacity uh, on the cluster to well a variety of different areas and i think we'll we'll come back to revisit this a little bit later when mm-hmm. we talk about organizations um utilization of environments but essentially what certainly what i typically tend to see is organizations that sort of sp- split their cluster by capacity by divisions or departments that sort of um, consume the environment. The nice thing about capacity scheduler queues, though, is that you don't just say, well, half the cluster gets used by division A, half the cluster by division B. And if division A is not in, still asleep, hasn't woken up yet, um, division B can actually utilize and burst beyond their guaranteed minimum limit and up to a, a maximum that you can also specify. So yeah. then when Division A comes into work and starts running various jobs, Division B gets squeezed back to their guaranteed sort of limits. So the YARN, I would argue, does most of what you need from from a, a performance management sort of perspective for isolation. So you can have single data lakes. The, there are a few, you know, like with a lot of these things, there are a few caveats to it. Yes, it then involves you need to go and manage some capacity scheduler queues. Um, yes, it does mean if you want to do, so out of the box you get um, you know, CPU and memory that you can handle. But if you want to do disk I.O. and network I.O., then things start to get a lot more involved mm-hmm. and you need to start looking at things like C groups at the yeah, at the yeah, Linux yeah. OS level and that sort of thing. So it's all very doable, um, but there is a trade-off in, in complexity. Now, whether the trade-off in complexity, uh, I generally tend to find that, especially as customers get larger, that trade-off in complexity is much better because you get a greater utilization of the assets and therefore you know everyone everyone wins in the long term yeah but for me actually this discussion happens when it's budgeting time yeah, yeah. typically have uh, if you want to have a big data lake you need a big system and that costs quite a bit of money so typically in an organization you have multiple departments that will pool their money to make the one big cluster to rule mm-hmm. them all yeah but then, of course, every department wants guarantees that they will have usage rights on the part that they paid for. Yeah. And while it's true that the yarn, the, the, the way you can actually um, uh, scale your, your queue, have a, a, a um, how do you call that, uh, you have 50% always and you can burst to 70, 80, whatever percent. That's a great thing and it actually works very well, but... I haven't seen this use very much because, yeah, but if I let you burst out of your quota, then I have to give away my quota. I paid for this. And from that point, yeah. the next step then goes, well, I'll just make my own little cluster, and that way I'm sure it's mine. <laughs> and yes, it's not doing anything half of the time, but at least I know it's mine. And it has a bit of a, a, men- a mentality shift that people need to go through sometimes. Agreed. Where this is my cluster to this is my resource pool. and yeah. Yeah, it 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 is. I agree. It is one of the. I mean, you you got those kind of conversations again early on in the the world of virtualization. Yeah, exactly the same story. Oh, I don't want to deploy on the shared virtual infrastructure. I want servers that I bought that I paid for, and if they're only running at you know ten percent capacity for seventy percent of the time, then fine mm-hmm. at least i bought them and i can use them as much as i like and i think you're right it, it's a it's about education it's about maturity and it's getting people to see the the larger picture of you know if you're if you start it's not just the servers that you replicate for your particular workload but what about all the data you want access to yeah, and exactly. things like that so yeah so you have multiple little clusters we'll talk about it later i think you have a lot of duplication of data and that Very costs a lot so. of money in the end yeah 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 Okay, so we're keeping it short. So moving on through to, well, trying anyway. Moving it through onto onto security. I think this is 
this is probably one of the easiest ones to to cover i would hope i would think we'll see what's um, your opinion <laughs> i don't know well let's see so certainly from from my perspective uh with hdp you get uh, apache ranger and that really does give you a very very um concrete way to separate out roles and privileges and different divisions from you know from their access to a variety of different data you can give data that is shared by some you can do row masking and column masking in you know things like uh, hive and hbase you know as needed um where you know things sometimes want to go to that next level where they want to start thinking about uh, tokenization format preserving encryption um, you know data anonymization all of those things are also possible some of which you can you can essentially work around by using some native tools others it's honestly better to start looking at um, additional third-party ISV value add on top of that. So something like uh, an HPE secure data or a data guys or a Privacera or, you know, Privatar, whatever. There's a variety of different solutions that you can extend the native support for that. But I personally tend to think that, you know, the security requirements are probably some of the ones that are the the best handled in this particular space. Yeah, but do you go for one big or for a, little, a lot of small clusters, which is well, easier that, to secure? Well, so easier to secure, I, I, again, I, I think it's easier to do that centrally on a single environment um, with a single, um, a single security layer. Uh, so I think that that's one that is typically easily easier done even on a larger single cluster um but yeah i knew i was going to disagree but you can you can apply (laughs) all of that same level of security to a bunch of smaller clusters and just isolate them but then you pay the price well for me this is an optimization question actually your security should be automated and uh, if you look at the kerberization of a hadoop cluster you have kerberos in there but I can have 20 clusters with Kerberos all point to the same Active Directory. Mm -hmm. And so my Active Directory is still one big cluster view, if you like, but a lot of small clusters can use it. Now, things like Ranger are still single cluster only, but if memory serves the Cloudera counterpart, the Sentry thing can actually do multiple clusters. So I would actually like to see Ranger also go multi-cluster, so I can just make the rules. I'm afraid you're wrong there. I'm wrong? So please correct. Yeah, you're wrong. Ranger Ranger has actually supported multi-cluster since XA Secure days. See, that's another reason for my uh, point of view then. Because both of these things can do multi-cluster. My Active Directory is multi-cluster. So my whole security is actually not tied to how many clusters I have. So it should be easier or just as easy to have one big or a lot of small ones. Now, this is, of course purely on the level of uh, authorization authentication. If you're looking at things like network isolation, uh, having your disks in a secure vault environment, things like that, that's a different thing. Having a lot of separate clusters could mean that every employee has a small PC with a lot of disks under his desk. Don't do that. (laughs) That's, of course, a big problem for security just on the hardware way. And having one big cluster usually means you're in a data center that has protected access gating or whatever. So that will give you better security. So definitely there's a plus there for the one big cluster. But uh, when you were talking, I was hearing a lot about ranger rules and uh, masking and things like that. And those, I don't think, should actually have a pro-con for either small or big clusters. Mm, I don't know. I I would argue that the you know a centralized story on security um where you have you know where all your data is you know it it all has the same level of access Mm -hmm. control across it i think there's there is a I still think there is a benefit to that. Above True, the, but above a centralized data security uh, idea will be larger than just your Hadoop cluster. It will. So it you will. will still go across your single cluster thing there anyway, because all of your front ends, all of the uh, data marts we have, I don't know what else you have in there, the things actually using the data, also will fall under that scope. They so, will. It's a bit of the. It's a it's a very bad comparison, but you have that uh, security through obscurity thing, and I, I feel sometimes <laughs> people say I'm going to take one big cluster that way I secure that one and I don't have to look at it again. 
but people add stuff to that one big cluster yeah, and open that's, holes. That's just so exactly. So <laughs> it's more complicated than just that. So it is. Your, your security view should be larger than any cluster, even if it's one big or a lot of small ones. And it will evolve over time without a doubt. Yep, and it should always have usability first and frontmost in mind, because if you don't make it usable, if user friendly, people will find ways around it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. So there's one little thing that uh, Chris mentions here. That's the uh, if you have a hard requirement like BCI and something like that, that just tells you you need to have one cluster. Then of course you can't escape it. And he's right in that. Yeah, definitely. And uh, as as with all of these things, um, first of all, refer to any legislation or regulation you need to follow, because that might just tell you exactly what you've got to do, and you might have no choice about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, all right. So the final one in isolation is really about sort of uh, about deployment. And what they're talking about with deployment in this particular sense is um, do certain workloads or certain uh, elements need a certain type of node? You know, do they need specific libraries? Do they need specific hardware like GPUs? Um and therefore, does it make sense to have you know a, a dedicated GPU cluster, a dedicated cluster with certain libraries on it, or you know is it possible to do these things where you you use node labeling and you can split that out? So some things are using other versions of Python, some things have got dedicated hardware. I I personally think that this one is this is one of the ones that comes out as a wash. I, I don't yeah. I think it's something you need to think about, but you can do this either way. You never solve the problem because no matter how small your cluster is, unless you make a one-person cluster, you will have this problem. Because if yeah. I'm a data scientist, I will do my testing on non-GPU machines because GPU machines are too expensive. But when I go in production or I, I go further down my exploration road, I will need GPUs at some point. So at, if I have many small clusters, one GPU, one non-GPU, I have to start moving my data over. Ooh, something's wrong. Move data back to my exploration. Ah, that's just going to be an issue everywhere. Yep. Uh, things like uh, library versioning is being solved by the uh, by the product, by the software because things like uh, dockerization of yarn and whatever allows you to do stuff like that as well versioning mm. gets more and more embedded into the software as well so that shouldn't be an issue anymore to to some degree at least but uh, as you said it's, it's a wash if you have a big one or a lot of small ones you will still have this problem in more or less the same level i think yeah indeed Okay. Moving All right. On. Moving on then. Scalability. Um, this is this one's a little bit weird, but I have a slightly different take on it that I don't think is covered later. Yeah. So when they're talking about scale, well, when he is talking about scalability here, um, his point is if your infrastructure isn't going to scale horizontally, then you know you can uh, you can, in his words, shard vertically, but the the whole concept around you know, Hadoop is it, it it is very much designed for horizontal and scale out. Um, one of the areas where I see organizations hitting this is when they start to get to very 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 significant data volumes. They get to a point where certainly on prem they are you know chewing up space in data centers faster than they can provision new data centers. So, you know, there are sometimes limitations not in the actual underlying software um, or infrastructure from, you know, a a fundamental capability perspective, but actually on the customer side, they, they don't have, you know, single or dual data centers that have enough contiguous space where they can actually continue to grow a, a Hadoop cluster beyond that. So, that's one of the areas where scalability might come in, not because there are limitations at the software mm-hmm. side, as I said, but because there, there may be you know, just physical data center limitations. Yeah, and not really space in cubic meters, but more in cooling and electricity provi- provided. Because a lot of data yeah. centers, green data centers don't have that much gigawatts available. And I've lived that. I've actually had a cluster that went bigger, and the data center had X amount of power available in about about a small, I don't a dozen rooms. I think they had, and it was nicely segregated. That each room had one twelfth of the total capacity, and yeah, you needed more. 
Yeah. And then we tried to make two clusters and connect them up with fiber and see if it was fast enough. But this was in the Hadoop 1.0 days. So in these days, that just didn't scale. That just yeah, scaled. Yeah. Today, I would say that you might still be able to bridge uh, two rooms in one data center with just uh, good cabling. Yeah. But if you have to go to multi-data center, then yeah, it's uh, totally... Uh, uh, the one other thing I would think about more on the software side is uh, using Hadoop uh, incorrectly. Because if you look at Spark, for instance, uh, Spark is memory-driven, so you put your whole, all your data in memory and you want to have mm-hmm. petabytes of data in memory. That should be able to scale horizontally. But then you have to make sure that you actually write your software the way that it actually works that way. If you make your, your, your software in a way that it is not embarrassingly parallel, you will never be able to scale it horizontally and you will need one <laughs> big node that has a petabyte of, of memory, RAM, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that's basically between air quotes doing it wrong. Don't yeah. want to insult anybody, but that's just, if you're doing this, then go HPC, go to one of those big uh, single, uh, single image clusters. Don't go Hadoop then. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Okay, moving on. All right. Um, the next, the next point that Chris mentions is migration, and I. Uh, this is one that I think is slightly, slightly odd in this list. I, I, I like a lot of the others, but this one I think is particularly strange. And his, his view on this is how he is, or his point on this is how easy it is it to migrate from a single cluster to many or and vice versa um you know do you shift users onto their own systems if they if their utilization is causing a problem um it seems to be focused around user migration um and user utilization but this is one of the ones that i i just don't I don't typically see coming up usually because you deal with the the isolation components up front that we talked about earlier with yeah. the sort of performance isolation you know, whether it's yarn capacity scheduler queues or um, whatever it might be but the the sort of the, the way that he describes migration uh, I don't generally see coming up what I do see is um, you know not necessarily migration as such, but sort of um, going through upgrades and going through um, you know system maintenance. Um, obviously, if you've got multiple different systems, then you know as a whole your environment isn't down all at once. Yes, you know Hadoop has come a, a long way in terms of rolling upgrades and express upgrades to reduce downtime, and in some cases, in some cases, almost eliminate downtime. But the the pay the sort of the the price you pay for, you know, a rolling upgrade is you spend a longer time in a degraded state as you're re, as you're sort of rolling batches of machines at a time and services at a time over a longer period of time. Um, so yeah, that I'm I'm not sure that this this particular point is is one that I really agree with. I don't know what your thoughts are on. Uh, pretty similar. I mean, you talk about the rolling migration, that doesn't really change if you're a big or a small one, because if yeah. you have a lot of small clusters, they will have some interdependency because a consumer A is needing source B to exactly. work, and if this one upgrades, you'll have to upgrade too. So it'll only make things harder. Now, the one time that I do talk about this uh, subject is, uh, uh, as you said, in the planning phase with the performance uh, isolation and stuff, the whole when the budget talk starts with should we do one big cluster a lot of small ones and every department says i'll make my own little cluster that way it'll work well and once we're big enough we'll join them together and at that point it makes sense to have some talk about yes that's possibly that's possible but do you know what that will mean how much work that will entail how easy yeah. it would be to migrate these separate data uh, data silos again into one big data lake yeah. so yeah. at that point i can see this to- this this uh, coming up but this is mainly in the the planning stage before you actually start and i guess in that view it does has a space here but you're right. It's a bit of bit of uh, the uh, the odd duck out here. Yeah, and the other thing you, you brought up a really good point actually around that sort of migration of if people start off with lots of separate silos and then think about migrating later on um, once they get quote unquote big enough. Um, it that that to me I have heard that before, 
and you know when you start to dig into it you you get to the point where to do to do that sort of approach well and to minimize the pain later on you have to do so much very very uh, rigorous governance of how those individual silos are deployed to make sure that you don't create yourself unnecessary pain and misery, mm-hmm. you know, further on down the line when you're looking to actually combine the environments. That what, when we looked into, and I, I have a specific um, customer in mind in this case, when we looked into just how much rigor they would needed to put into that to make that migration sensible at some point in the future they realized that actually Let's it really it was just yeah it just it just was so much easier to do one big one from the outset and yeah. i think it, it's got better and I, I was thinking about this as we were talking about the topic earlier with and you mentioned about you know oh i just want my cluster because then i know it'll run properly and i've paid for it and that sort of thing is is that actually um there's some really nice tooling that's coming in now um you know certainly if you're a, a hortonworks support customer you can use something like smart sense and that gives you a lot of information around um you know provide zeppelin notebooks that can provide you know show back or chargeback style information so you can actually show individual divisions departments users you know you know worst worst running queries you know badly configured jobs you do a little bit of public naming, naming and shaming, all for the the good of the organisation. But you can also do, you know, actually your department didn't use all of its capacity and and this year, and you know, so you can actually you can dynamically right size the environment on a um, year by year basis and uh, you know, or month by month basis, even as as things progress through. And starting to see organisations sort of budgeting. Not so much for the hardware up front, but actually for that continuous, you know, big data as a service within their organization. And it's it's more showback than actual direct chargeback. Chargeback tends to cause quite a bit of internal friction, but at least, you know, showing different parts of an organization how much they're using of a particular environment on a regular basis gives them a, a warm, fuzzy feeling that, you know, they're, they're getting value from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a recurring theme uh, by now, I guess. But the whole big data thing was meant to uh, take down data silos, walls between data mm-hmm. silos. Mm-hmm. But just as it does that, it also has to take down walls uh, between organizational department silos. Very much so, yeah. The, the and, one, and that's one thing that takes perhaps even more time than planning a cluster, planning your organization around using a single data lake. It's a bit of hyper these days, but having a single golden repository of your data so that everybody can benefit from it. Yeah. But the necessary tools to do show back, charge back if you want to, to have that governance in place. Yeah, yeah. It's getting Uh, better. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it absolutely is improving. Um, If you look at, for example, um, some of the pieces that we've got and we've seen uh, organizations doing around the acceleration they've seen from data lakes. Uh, and this is one of the elements where I think one big, probably better than many small, is the the acceleration as people add more use cases to their environments the data sets are already on the data lake. So they don't have to go cap in hand to a certain part of the organization. Hi, I'd like access to your data because I want to do this and that and something else with it. The data is already there. Okay, you need to still go through almost certainly some sort of process of being granted authorization, um, sorry, authentication to actually be able to access that data on the data lake. And maybe you get a, maybe you get a sanitized version or maybe you get a full version of it that contains all the PII, depending on what data source it is. But having the data already in that place uh, has always been one of the things that allows organizations to be far more responsive and far more aggressive in use cases as they go forward, as the a volume of data and the richness of data gets more and more um, prevalent on the data lake. That that sort of acceleration and that pickup moving forwards, I think, is that's one of the things that's always impressed me. 
Yeah, and it's also excellent for R and D environments where oh, explore, yeah. exploratory experimentation or experimental yeah. exploration becomes yeah. easily possible because it's already there. Just give somebody access to yep. perhaps a limited part of the data set, but you don't have to start moving data because data is still very slow to move. Yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah, that that sort of that data science playground is is still very very key. And this is the thing that these startups are making money with today: just being able to have a lot of data available and do something interesting with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. indeed. Okay. All right. Uh, so I think we've done that one to death. <laughs> but um, yeah. So the, the next one is is automation, um, and this. Honestly, this is one of those things that, again, I think is uh, is is mostly a wash. Whether it's you go for issue. one, yeah, like whether you go for one big cluster or lots of oh. little clusters, it, it still needs to be automated. Well, you, yes, but you do have a lot of people still doing it the wrong way by installing well, it by hand <laughs> and then keep on building it, and after two years, having no idea how it's working and totally panicking. What happens if this thing goes down? Yeah, I mean, I I, I come from a, a background that's that's really wedded into the into this sort of particular area, and I the number of organisations, very big organisations, you know, global organisations, that I still see deploying Hadoop that don't have a configuration management framework built in, and I'm not talking about. For the Hadoop layer, you know, for HDP, it's got Ambari. It handles that perfectly well. I'm talking about for the basic OS layer, people still, you know, installing stuff. You know, maybe they've got an automated install for the OS, but then doing a whole bunch of manual tweaks or running a setup script that tweaks things once off. It's just not good enough. Mm-hmm. Please don't do that. Please get a proper configuration management framework in. Please. Yeah. <laughs> continuous integration, continuous deployment. It's yeah. not just a buzzword you have to do it. And really especially did. with my cloud uh, glasses on, mm-hmm. that makes it even, because the whole idea of cloud is having flexibility to move your stuff around. If you don't automate this stuff, you're shooting yourself in the, well, in the butt. Yeah, yeah. So do you have a cloud hat to go with your cloud glasses? Uh, not yet. That's when I become expert. Okay. What about cloud shoes? i call them slippers but anyway (laughs) okay okay fair enough um yeah so i think i think we're we're both actually fairly uh fairly verbose and consistent on that uh, particular one little thing to add perhaps is that if you look at cloud stuff then a lot of uh, automation is done if you look at public cloud stuff a lot of Mm -hmm. automation is done for you already you have uh, cloud break you have uh, Amazon has EMR, uh, Azure has uh, HD Insight, Google has, uh, what's it called again, Dataproc, which yeah. take away the whole hassle of automating it yourself. But then, of course, you have to um, take take with it the fact that your flexibility is limited because you will have to yeah, consume... Live within that services. automation framework, essentially. Exactly. And, uh, but also... If you look at, I mean, even if you just look at within your own house, within sort of the the Azure environments, there's actually multiple ways of, of providing automation. So you, sure. as you mentioned, you've got HD Insight. You've also got, you can deploy vanilla HDP mm-hmm. using uh, Azure's own ARM automation built in from the marketplace. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And a lot of third-party vendors have Hadoop embedded in their solution which is also yeah. automat- automatically yeah. deployed so and i think a lot of the automation went uh, became a lot easier because of the cloud integration and whatever you do for a cloud environment is also there for a non-cloud environment so the tools just keep on working yeah so yeah that yeah. kind of uh, easy deployment it's one of the signs when a, a solution becomes mature because when it's still experimental and building on top of not completely stable bases then deployment is hard because you have to do a lot of things manual today Hadoop and the whole ecosystem is mature enough still a lot of things that are being bolted on top but those aren't in the real Hadoop environment yet if you look at Hadoop at the distributions automation is pretty much uh, a daunting yeah yeah, very much so okay next Mm -hmm. okay SLAs um 
this is another one that I think comes into the first points that we covered around isolation. I think SLAs shouldn't be a problem as long as you do your isolation correctly. I have customers using single data lake environments that where they have critical workloads that ha- that are very very time constrained and you know they have yarn capacity scheduler queues that set that are set at certain levels during certain periods of time when those workloads need to run mm-hmm. and literally if they don't get those run in the correct times there are millions of pounds worth of fines just mm-hmm. for screwing that up once yep. so SLAs, I, I get it, it's important, but when we're talking about data lakes, well, well, talking about data lakes or big data in general, we're talking about organizations becoming fully data-driven. We're talking about uh, you know, a movement, a disruptive movement where organizations are actually, this is becoming the lifeblood of how they operate. So the the whole big data hadoop data lake call it what you will is becoming absolutely mission critical to how organizations are operating anyway so i i personally think this one's a little bit of a uh, a red herring if you're talking workloads i completely agree there is one other way of looking at this which mm-hmm. might or might not have been his intention and that's uh, hardware maintenance. If you're in the cloud, then you don't care about hardware. But if you have an on-premise cluster, and it's a cluster that runs mission-critical stuff that needs to have hardware support contracts of uh, within 60 minutes replacement of disks, of CPUs, or whatever, which for a Hadoop cluster should never happen because you should just add 10% to your cluster and have a much cheaper maintenance contract. Very but let's not so, go there. Yeah. But if you have something like that, then having one big cluster means the whole cluster needs to fall under that very expensive maintenance contract. So having a smaller cluster for the mission critical stuff and then yeah. a bigger one. But I would argue, I would argue that that's to, to use your words, air quotes, doing it wrong. Yes, like, right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't mean it doesn't happen. <laughs> oh no, you, you are absolutely right. It does happen. But yeah, I think that that's on us to educate people. You're doing it yeah. wrong. I think this is also more something that a uh, not the end user of the cluster, but a hoster that hosts Hadoop as a service might encounter because he has some uh, financial institute customers and some more less mission critical clusters uh, customers, and he wants to. I don't know. Yeah, but you're right. It's doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. In that case, moving on. <laughs> moving on. You don't have to disagree with me, you know. It's it's fun. Oh yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> this is the entertainment we provide. Come on. This is true. This is true. The the sparring, the sparring for your ears. Um, all right. So the next one, um, cost. And this is this is really sort of leaning into utilization. And this one does seem to very much focus on you know running many smaller clusters often leads to you know lower utilization of each individual cluster and yeah that's that's really where i mean f- we often get questions around you know can i virtualize hadoop and my answer is yes absolutely you can virtualize hadoop you know, every single cloud is as a virtualized mm-hmm. instance of, of hadoop um, so of course you can do it but if you're doing this, you need you need to evaluate the reasons why you're doing it. Yeah. And in in many cases, if you're looking at dedicated on-prem and you're going to be at scale, virtualization may not make much sense um, because Hadoop, in a way, is a virtualization layer of its own, and it it does it operates um, a virtualization at the at more of the data layer. But if you look at how um, how it operates from a workload perspective, you know you fire a particular job in, and you know every disk and every CPU and every node will light up as as the multiple replicas of data are all pulled together and jobs start churning through. Whereas virtualization um, and you know containerization here, talking about Mesos and Kubernetes, were really more designed around. Lots of different competing work, or lots of different workloads with lots of different utilization cycles. So, you know, workloads were getting larger and larger, weren't consuming 
you know, the sorry, servers were getting larger and larger. Workloads weren't increasing at the same pace, and so you you saw virtualization being used to smooth out those uh, those lumps and to get better utilization of the hardware. I would argue that that's less of a reason to do it in the in the uh, in the, the land of Hadoop. Yeah, you should never look at virtualization in a Hadoop perspective. Hadoop has its own uses and virtualization has its own uses and sometimes they coincide. If you have a mm. totally virtualized environment in your data centers, then your Hadoop will run virtualized. Mm. But there's never a need for it. If you're going to public cloud, as you said, it's going to be virtualized, obviously. Um, but, and I think this, yeah, but he's not really talking virtualization. It's more about utilization and uh, the, the, the underutilization of a lot of small clusters. And that's just yeah. a problem. So if you can avoid that, do it. That's what queuing systems are built for. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, moving on as we are now running a little bit longer, what we see. Um, <laughs> Almost so done. Con- Conway's law is brought up here. Um, Hello, James, if you're out there. Um, so Conway's law in this case is, as uh, Jan educated me before we got started, was around um, IT systems essentially mirroring your organization. And I, I certainly see this happening all the time, um, but I see it usually happening um, from a perspective as, as to how people are going to design their capacity schedule queues. Um, yeah. I see it from a utilization perspective. You know, marketing are going to have uh, a different set of requirements from finance, um, who are going to have a different set of requirements from engineering. And so, yes, they will have different utilization patterns. They'll have uh, different capacity requirements. They'll have different workload requirements. So... Yeah, and if you're doing it wrong, you're using yarn queues to make that uh, a reality. Mm. And, well, it's, again, also the thing I talked about at the beginning here, the budgeting at the beginning. That's where yeah. this comes yeah. to the front very much because every department wants its, it has its own budget and does its own little thing. Um, yes, but that's, again, uh, the, the silo, the walls that has to come down. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Yep. Last last major one, and then wrap up and see yep. a few things that, that weren't covered in this. And this one is actually the one that I think you cannot get around. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, I mean, the, the last element that's really brought up here is multi-region. And um, if you are a global organization, um most organizations will have a you know a global HQ and a number of satellite regions. And the reality is that if those regions are large enough of their own right, and I continually fall back into the thinking about telco when I think about this. So you know have you have multiple individual operating companies in multiple different countries, but you will often have a primarily centralized group. Uh, resource as well. Now, those individual opcos will almost certainly run their own data lakes in, in in the majority of cases. And in fact, the group function will also often run their own data lake. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is usually it's just the sheer volume of data that they're looking at. I mean, if especially in the telco space, you can have you know, thousands of nodes, you can have, you know, millions of events per second, even one of our largest customers is talking about billions of events per second streaming into the environments. And it's just not feasible to have a a single centralized environment to rule them all when you're looking at, you know, a completely global flow of data and a global utilization of that data. Um, So, you know, I think be pragmatic about it. I think when you're talking about multi-region, you're no longer talking about the multi, many small clusters. You're mm-hmm. talking about actually many big ones. Many big ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think it, it, it's 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 a bit of a nonsense element within this one big cluster or many small because mm-hmm. it's actually the answer is probably many big. But well, I, I get I get why it's I get why it's in here. I've, I've got I've got one that might uh, still be valid. But uh, just one thing I want to add first is the whole um, uh, what's happening now with the computation at the edge. 
mm-hmm. will change this a little bit, how big these side clusters will be. Those will be able to shrink a bit, perhaps, because you can send more to the central location because you do filtering at the edge. But that's a whole uh, discussion in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one other reason why you might still have two small clusters in multi-region is disaster recovery. If you need disaster recovery and you only have a small cluster, you will have a second small cluster somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'll I'll uh, I'll buy that bit of wordsmithing. <laughs> <laughs> no, the whole disaster recovery thing, of course, is still uh, something that lives and is. Uh, yeah, if you have a lot of really important data there, then having two clusters that are identical to each other somewhat, or at least are able to store enough data to replicate whatever you need, if you lose one of the two. Yeah, it's still something that happens and isn't going to go away very soon. Yeah, I think DR is actually a good a good topic for another podcast. Another podcast? Come on! Yeah, I know. Never end. (laughs) That's right. We're going to be making podcasts until we're older and (laughs) greyer. In the article, Chris now goes to a kind of conclusion. But before we go there, uh, there's one thing I didn't uh, find in his list. And I'm putting my cloud glasses on again with the hat this time. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, when you're in a cloud environment, you can actually have the one big and many small at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because in a cloud environment, your storage will most likely be separated from your compute. And an on-premise uh, solution, that's not often the case, unless you're using an Isilon or some other big storage uh, layer behind it, then it's still valid. But in a cloud environment, you'll have your data in block storage or some kind of uh, data lake uh, storage layer that your cloud provider provides. And it's very possible, and I'm talking specifically about Microsoft because that's the one I know the best, but I'm assuming that in the other clouds it's possible too, to have multiple compute clusters all looking at that same data layer. And in this paradigm, you can actually have the one big data lake, have all your data in one central location, but still have separate clusters with separate tasks running on top of there. And those clusters should then be relatively short-lived. The idea here is that your data lake is only the storage layer. And when you want to run your Spark job, you spin up a Spark cluster with only the Spark thing, with enough clusters, enough uh, nodes, memory, compute, CPU that you need for this particular job run that job and down the cluster again. And that way you can have a zillion little clusters over the, the period of a year using that same data lake layer. Now, in this case, you're talking about cluster as a workload cluster only. And that, of course, is typically a very small one. Yeah. I think the other the other one that it, he kind of hints towards at the at the end when he's talking about the the, the middle ground, which is his conclusion. But the the other thing that I very often see is um, conversations around um, you know development test and production environments, and I I have certainly seen over the course of my you know, getting to the fourth year of talking about this in in essence um, is organisations are definitely moving towards single co located. Where they where they are embracing the data lake, they are going single co-located dev test and prod within that single cluster. But that's for that's for the data. That's for the sort of the jobs that are running. That's not for the underlying infrastructure. So dev test and prod still needs to exist because if you're testing OS upgrades, if you're doing Hadoop distribution upgrades, then those elements will still need those separate dev test and prod environments. You'll still need to go through those gateways and do those sorts of checks. But the the actual development of and you know, training of new ML models and all those sorts of things, those are starting to happen more and more on on the data lake. And the data lake is beginning to be uh, you know more often separated into those different kind of slices. So you know we talked earlier about the uh, you know, Conway's law and about the um, segregation of clusters, the isolation of clusters, but then you can think of that. That's that's at one level, and you know, a, a level above that, you might even split it again between dev, test, and prod. And again, you can have those environments also bursting between. So, you know, production workloads. Yes, you're bound to have some batch stuff, but production interactive workloads are likely to be quite low during the day. So, sorry, during the night. night. But uh, then, unless you've got a lot of night workers, maybe. Um, 
But if you're doing, you know, training of machine learning models, that's more of a, you know, more of something that would exist in sort of the dev and, and test areas of, of capability and utilization. And those are the sorts of things, you know, you can run at a large cluster, you can run at scale. And in fact, the more data you feed that sort of exercise, the more accurate it will get. So that that's the other thing I think that was that was missing from this uh, this story. It's not directly relevant, I guess, but he does well, hint towards it at the end. Well, for me, this starts to talk towards ephemeral clusters. Uh, mm. If you look at dev test, those are things that I see coming to the public cloud. The the big yep. cluster is still on premise because that's just a big factory machine that's chugging along all day every day. And public cloud or private cloud doesn't really have a, a, an advantage there. But having okay, we need to do. We need to check if version X and version Y work together. I'm not going to buy a dozen chassis and start working there. If I still have them lying around, great. I'll start. I try to repurpose them if they're still yeah. joinable. Blah blah. But putting that into a cloud just for a, a week, couple of weeks, putting up, putting down, only running during daytimes. That's the ephemeral clouds, ephemeral systems that we can see happening a lot. And this also is a little bit valid for the uh, data scientist that wants to just experiment between uh, two deep... He wants to experiment with Tiano and Cafe and TensorFlow just to see which of mm-hmm. the three he likes the best or is best suited to whatever he's doing. He doesn't care about the real data at that point. He just needs a little subset to play around with and see which which does what he thinks it should do and then yep. go back to the big cluster. So that is another way we have... A, uh, smaller clusters in existence, but I don't think this is the discussion of this article because these clusters are ephemeral. They just, as you need them, they exist and then they go away again. While the article is more talking about my really factory machine should I have one big machine or a lot of small machines. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. Apart from that, I kind of agree with his uh, end conclusion. There, the best thing to do is to think things through and have an informed discussion with everybody and be flexible. Indeed. The answer, as is the answer to many of these questions, is it depends. depends. <laughs> <laughs> you should have said it from the start. It could have saved people in hours of, the, of their life. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But then they wouldn't have enjoyed this this fun conversation. I hope it was. So, so there we go. And I think with that, that's about all the time we have for today. Hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, but until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form where you can give us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. Look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you there. Thank you.